Well, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to see a lot of you again. It's great to be worshiping down here with the church family in, in Gainesville. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, book of Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be looking at verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, the last revival that reached the United Kingdom was one that actually happened in the country of Wales, and it was over a hundred years ago now, 1904. To 1905, and it was a revival uh, where this verse uh, played um, a, a role. And let me tell you a little bit about that and the, and the background. Wales uh, at the time was a uh, heavily industrial country with uh, a lot of mines, and mining was one of the major industries of the country. And prior to the revival, um, they used to take, um, well, even after the revival, they used to, in order to get some of the work done underground in these mines, they used to bring uh, what are called pit ponies underground. And the pit ponies used to uh, help with some of the heavy lifting and the shunting of underground uh, machinery that was needed. And before the revival, the way that the miners used to communicate with the animals was by using foul language. In fact, it was the only language that the animals understood, and they took their directions from the foul language coming out of these hardened working-class men working in Wales at the time. Well, then the revival came, and these men were miraculously uh, converted. And like with all uh, revivals, like with all conversions, you're looking for fruit, fruit in action, and you're looking for fruit in words as well. Well, these men came under the conviction of the word, and part of that conversion was wanting to align their lives, as it is in our case, it was in theirs, aligning their lives to the words of Scripture. And of course, one of the exhortations of Scripture is to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Well, of course, this led to problems underground. When they were communicating with these pit ponies about how to do the various things they wanted to do, the pit ponies, they refused to use foul language, and the pit ponies didn't understand them anymore. They had an issue. They, they could see that there was something wrong with these men. These men had changed. So they, I, I, I really like that story as an example of changed lives where the scriptures have come in, people have come under the scriptures through the work of conversion and aligned their lives to obedience. And this is the verse that we, this morning, are going to be looking at together. I want to set the context a little bit for you uh, here this morning. Um, it's in the book of Ephesians, as, as you know. Um, the the uh, church in Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul. He planted the church on his second missionary journey, as I'm sure many will know. And he indeed spent three years there as their pastor uh, between around uh, 52 to 55 now, when Paul is writing this letter, he's writing about five to six years after that. So the church would have grown and he wouldn't have uh, known all of them. But he's writing this pastoral letter to them. And it's one of the only letters in the New Testament where there's no obvious purpose for the letter. There are no issues in the church that he is addressing through the letter. So it is a doctrinal treatise where the book is just filled with glorious doctrines about, you, about the, the status, the new status of Christians in the first half of the letter, verses uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then 4, 5, and 6, more about how they then live because of those glorious doctrines. So you have the to be in the first three chapters, and then you have the to do in the second three chapters, and that's the order of the apostle. You can't do the stuff in the second three chapters unless the stuff in the first three chapters is true about you. And our verse this morning comes right in the middle of this exhortation, the to-do part of the epistle. And you can really see the, the, the pastoral heart in Paul as he's writing this. Paul um, says in Acts 20.20, 20, um, how I did not share, talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts, Paul says, I did not sh shrink to declare uh, to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. It was Paul's burden 
to present his churches mature in Christ. You see that in Colossians uh, 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was a real burden of the, the apostle, to present his churches mature in Christ. So all of these instructions are for our maturity in Christ. So that's a little bit about the overall context um, into which this, this uh, uh, Paul writes these words. A little bit more specifically, I'd like to draw your attention to, in, uh, if you're still open to Ephesians, I'd like to draw your attention to some of the words uh, that the apostle uses, starting in verse 422, just before our verse, uh, where Paul says, um, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So our verse comes in the context of putting off your old self and putting on your new self. Typical Pauline language, and and you see Paul using it again in Romans, where he talks about the old man and the new man. Same theological concept that I I, I want to discuss um, before we delve into the the text itself. This old self and new self is best understood um, as personifications of two different conditions. The old self is a personification of the pre-Christian condition, and the new self is the personification of the new condition under Christ. So let's unpack this um, a little bit know that, let me just affirm a truth that we know about our salvation, that we receive a new heart. Um, Ezekiel uh, 36, um, 26, one of the verses that talks about uh, the new hearts that we receive. Let me just um, read that to us so that we can have that fresh in our minds. Ezekiel 36, 26, one of the key new covenant passages in the scriptures, along with Jeremiah 31, that talks of this new heart. Jeremiah 36, 26 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So a part of the new covenant promise given to Israel at the time and extended to us as Gentiles, um, most of us, uh, I assume, as as Gentiles, um, through Israel's rejection and in fulfillment of the promise he made to Abraham to bless all the nations, we receive these promises of the new covenant. And this covenant gives us the ability to um, walk and obey. Unlike the law of Moses... This, this new covenant actually puts his law within us, writes it on our heart, and gives us the ability to obey. Without this new covenant promise, we would not be able to do any of the things prescribed in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, including the one that we have today. So we know that about ourselves. That's a truth affirmed through the scriptures. Yet, and here's the catch where the old man, new man uh, position comes in, not all is made new. Not all is made new. We don't get zapped one day, get transformed, and then are able to walk perfectly in our lives, do we? We, it's in progress, and through sanctification, we see that our lives changing through, through. And so the Lord doesn't make us perfect overnight, and I think he does this to show that, show us and the world of his glorious work within us, that when the world sees that we're actually the same person, this isn't something going um, this isn't something mysterious, even though there's a mysterious element, but we remain the same person, yet God is using that same old person that was once engaged in sinful activities habitually, like perhaps the, the miners I mentioned, of habitually using the, the foul, vile language, yet God then changes us over time so that his glory may be shined through us. So he doesn't and to a new man overnight will come in glory. But we live in this world where we have this tension of the old man and the new man competing 
within us. And it's a fight. Um, it's, a, it's a struggle. Um, referring to the old man and new man language, I've read this recently. I thought it'd be helpful. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, says this. The fundamental elements in our personality and temperament are not changed by conversion and rebirth. The new man means the new disposition, the new understanding, the new orientation. But the man himself, psychologically, is essentially what he was before. Now, there's some God doesn't completely change us. There's elements of our personality that remain. Sometimes the, the things perhaps that we struggled with before, we have to make real attention to kill off after we are, we are converted. And our sensibilities, we each have different um, challenges with that. But there remains in us this tension between the old man and the new man. And uh, today, we're, um, w- w- one of the encouragements is to put off the old man and put on the new man through the use of our words. So that's the overall context here. This is one of the exhortations that we find. Next, I'd like to talk about speech in general. Before we get into the specifics of corrupt speech and good speech, let's just, let me just say a few things about speech in general. Well, the first thing is speech is a part of us being made in the image of God. We have the ability for complex language and we're able to communicate in such a way. Now, of course, animals can communicate in primitive ways, but you don't see them writing or penning their thoughts down on paper or writing poetry or any of these different ways. They don't see this complex language that makes humans different uh, from all other species and uh, all other uh, parts of God's creation, rather. Um, So it it is something that makes us in the image of God. And as a result of that, you'll find it comes under attack from the devil. The devil will try to um, corrupt this speech. Like everything else, he will attack this speech and uh, aim to corrupt it so that it doesn't give glory to God, but it actually uh, demeans God. And uh, it's certainly, it's a speech that's not, what God intended in his perfect creation. The second thing I want to say is words reveal the heart. Words reveal the heart. Our Lord says this in Matthew 15. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. This was in the context of the Pharisees complaining about washing, an external religious ceremony that the, they were critiquing Jesus' disciples for not doing. But they had made these man-made uh, rules up, and Jesus is saying, what's really corrupting you is not what's on the outside, but it's actually what's coming out of you on the, on the inside. And they, of course, said many terrible things, including blaspheming the Holy Spirit, words that came from their hearts out of their mouths. So they reveal your heart, the second thing on speech in general. Third thing, um, they are our fruit. Uh, In many instances, there's a tendency, I think, to separate words and deeds. When we think of fruit, we think of sometimes things we do more than the things that we say. Yet if you look at what the scripture says, Romans 15, 18, word and deed are always very closely aligned. Um, Romans 15, 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Word and deed. Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God, uh, through him to God the Father. So I want to get that point across this morning that words are very important and they count. Indeed, they are far more numerous than our, than our deeds could be, are the words that come out of our mouths. There was a study done by Arizona State University, and they averaged the amount of words that we speak as about 17,000 a day. There was a huge spectrum in this study, ranging from the lowest end, seven, which was a man in that instance of this study, 745 words, to, I think, forty-five or 47,000 on the other spectrum. And that was also a man on that end of the spectrum. 
spectrum. So the fallacy that, that ladies speak more than men is unproven by this study. But and it, nevertheless, you have s- around 17,000 a day, 17,000 um, opportunities to make sure that we are controlling our, our speech. So they're very important, they're very numerous, and they're alongside deeds in our fruit. And just in case I haven't convinced you enough about the importance of words, I think um, Matthew 12 says this, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So words have an eternal weight about them as well. So that covers a little bit about speech in general. Now I want to move on to the topic this morning of three principles that must govern Christian speech. Three principles that must govern Christian speech. The first being that our speech must not be corrupt. Now the use of the word um, corrupt here is used five times in scripture and I think helpful in our illustration. It's used uh, four times when it's associated with rotten fruit. Uh, it's used once um, with, uh, with association to and this is the only time that it's used with a moral sense. So six times in total, four, five, six times in total. And when I was preparing this, I was reminded of a story uh, along the association with rotten fish. Every summer we go up to um, Ohio and uh, on the coast of Lake Erie, there, get away from some of the Florida heat for a few weeks. And my wife's aunt had an idea on one occasion uh, to show the children uh, that there's a, a sheephead fish that has a particular type of bone in its skull that you can make jewelry out of, or you can make, and it has an L shaped. I think it's called a lucky bone of some some sorts. So that was a that was the idea, and she went about and scooped a bunch of dead fish out of Lake Erie, uh, so that the children could uh, see these bones in the head. So she scooped the dead fish out, put them in a cooler outside the outside the cottage and then was going to pull out these fish. Well, I tell you, the stench was just unbearable. My, aunt, my wife's aunt gave the children some lemons in the uh, so that the, the smell would be able to not be as strong as they were going about this. You'd think as a good father, I should be in solidarity with a lemon in my mouth doing this at a no chance. I was, I was out of there. I could not bear the smell um, of brings back some of the memories of that. The apostle uses when he talks about corrupt speech coming out of our mouth. It's strong, isn't it? It's strong. But here we have it used in a a moral sense to talk about corrupting speech. So I'd like now for us to get an understanding of what constitutes corrupt speech together. And there are five things that survey scripture here to look at what does the Bible say constitutes corrupt speech. Well, the first one I'd say is false witness. In the, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is also mentioned in Proverbs um, 11, 9 through 13. Proverbs 11, 9 uh, to 13. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. It's also mentioned in the Psalms, uh, around uh, Psalm 120, which we read Psalm 125. Uh, Pastor Brandon talked about it being one of the songs of ascent. This is the, uh, also a song of ascent um, coming before that. And Psalm 120 reads as follows.
In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what shall be done to you? You, you, dece- uh, you deceitful tongue, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of cedar. Too long have I my dwelling place among those who hate me. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Interesting um, background uh, to this. One commentator says this. Slander is, a leth- is as lethal a weapon as a revolver. Therefore, remember the context of going up to Jerusalem as the pilgrimage. Therefore, as the Israelite pilgrims journeyed to the religious festivals in Jerusalem, they could not help wondering whether they would be victims of a vicious smear campaign at home while they were gone. But why was this subject put first in this collection of pilgrim psalms? Samuel Cox answered, It is hardly an exaggeration to say that half of the miseries of human life spring from the reckless and malignant use of the tongue. And these wicked tongues generally wag fastest behind a person's back. We judge these sins of the tongue all too lightly until we ourselves are injured by them. Interesting, isn't it, that that was mentioned first there, that there was this expectation of some sort of slander going on. And here the psalmist is asking for protection from that. There seems to be in Psalm 120 an element of gossip, which is the second uh, facet of corrupt speech. It carries over many of the connotations of false witness, but the word gossip has um, a sense of whispering about it. So um, it, it seems to be derogatory speech, but done in a clandestine manner. So again, gossip number two of what constitutes um, corrupt speech. Number three, crude joking. Ephesians, just after the verse that we read, in Ephesians 5, 4, it says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading in the newspaper of the death of a British uh, politician who was a uh, leading member of the government in the, 19, in the 1990s and 2000s. And one of the comments... That gentleman was that he made some made the dirtiest jokes in Westminster Westminster being the uh, the, par- the location of Parliament and I was just thinking how sad there's a man who has died here and that, that is what somebody remembers about him letting crude joking um, come out of his his mouth um, and yet the world th- this was not said in a shameful way this was said in a way that really esteemed this fact about this man's life I remember as well when I was having uh, dinner once and uh, this uh, lunch on, on, a, on a meeting um, and there was this uh, uh, club in London, uh, a businessman's club, and this man was telling me across lunch that oh, one of the, uh, almost boasting about this fact about this club and he said, oh, you want to hear the language um, that goes on thereafter, you know, so it was almost like, yes, these esteemed businessmen of the land using foul language was something almost to be applauded. I think I was meant to be somewhat impressed in some way. Um, so it's not something that the world sees as wrong, but here we have um, Ephesians 5.4 as saying, let no crude joking um, either. And it brings up a question then, what happens if you're um, in, in the environment where someone says something like this to you and you're faced in that situation of a crude joke being told to you? Well, one of the pastors down in uh, Grace Emmanuel, Emmanuel Bible Church put this w- in a way that I'll, I'll not forget. And someone who did this to him, it was, a, um, I believe, a church member of some sort. So, and um, they mentioned to him these joking. And, and Todd Murray, the pastor down there, just said to him, I am so sorry that you thought I would find that funny. And then there was silence after that. I thought, what a good way of handling that situation where... Uh, but yet, what was done there was he still spoke the truth in love. He didn't ignore it, but it was done to him. Uh, now, I want to be careful here that when these things come up, that we're not quick to judge, that we're not quick to um, condemn in any way. 
But speech is a great illuminator as to the spiritual status of the person who is speaking to you. It can tell you a lot, and it's important that we take it. We're not, um, we're not moralists. The danger in preaching from some of the exhortations in Scripture is we forget who we are, and we get become moralistic. But we're not that. By the grace of God, we'd be doing all this stuff. So it's important to remember that. And then it's important for us to realize when speech gives someone away that we then know that they need the gospel. They, we don't run away, seclude ourselves necessarily. That may be appropriate at some point, um, especially if it's affecting you. But it's an opportunity to preach the gospel into that person's life because we can't change. Laws can't change people. The law of Moses proved that. But the gospel can through the changing of the heart and the new heart so that they have the laws written within them. That's what changes people. So I just want to, I don't want to leave that point without just giving us a reminder of how we are to react in situations, not in a condemnatory way, certainly not partaking in it either. I'll come to that in Taking the Lord's name in vain, number four of these defining speech. That's another way of doing it. Have an air of flippancy or nonchalance when using the name of our Lord. Certainly not ever in some sort of joke. Certainly not. And the last thing I, I want to go through, certainly an exhaustive list here, um, is anger. Yeah. Colossians um, 3.8. <clears throat> when you're going through Ephesians, it's helpful to look at Colossians, both written while Paul was in prison at the same time, and say many different, many, many similar things with a slightly different angle on them. You're looking at the same diamond, but you're looking at it from a different angle. And you can see that in Ephesians and Colossians. Just a side point. Ephesians 3.8 adds some illumination, I think, to this point of corrupt speech. And it says, it says uh, this, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I'll read them again. Uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now, the apostle is not talking here about righteous anger. He talks about that in the verse just prior to our verse uh, this morning. And I think righteous anger is something we have to handle very, very carefully because we rarely display it. It's not precluded, but I think so often we think sometimes we are being righteous in our anger, and we're not. We're being sinful. Uh, so be careful in invoking that your anger is 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 righteous because we, here we have a a, a, a exhortation to not be angry. Many times anger slips over into the sinful realm. And as one said, it's just really a manifestation of manipulation anger. Uh, somebody throwing a hissy fit so that everyone pampers to their needs. And so again, the apostle says there's no place for, for anger in the, in the Christian's so I hope that gives us a picture of some of the elements of corrupt speech that we are prohibited as Christians from following. And before I move on, I want to say this. There are times when we've all been guilty of these things, all of them. And it's a time where we, I'm sure, have regrets over our use of our words but there is grace and, and forgiveness for us as we grow in Christ. If you're in Christ, then the, those sins have been forgiven. And that's wonderful news when perhaps we are grieved at the words that we've used in the past that have hurt people, that have not given grace to people, that have, that have damaged people. But there's that, that, that great forgiveness that we have in Christ appears so precious when we reflect on our own hearts and some of the way that we've used words uh, irresponsibly, damagingly. But let us lean then on that grace that is there. But let's not leave it there, as the Apostle says um, in uh, Philippians. We don't want to dwell too much, but instead, as, as the Apostle says, that we forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead. You've got 5,000 more words today to you. So how many did I say? 17,000 more words today. 17,000 more words tomorrow and so on and so forth. Strive to use them to glorify God 
and not to glorify yourself. So anyway, just to conclude that first um, observation about um, uh, corrupt speech. Um, actually, just a just a, a thing more about having defined corrupt speech. I want to um, add a little bit. Bible is saying here. Um, the the use of the verb was was interesting and worthy of mention. I think it's a present imperative that has a force of a cessation of activity in progress. So it's like the old man is producing words that are bottled up in our mouths, and our job is to stop them from coming out. So themes in our life will be there. We live in this tension of the old man and the new man, and these words are going to be produced. But the command is, don't let them come out of your mouth. Don't let them come out. It's as if they're there. Stop them. Kill them in your mouth. I read a saying recently that said, have you tasted the words in your mouth before you spit them out? I thought that was helpful as well, to make sure that we are controlling what what comes. And just before we leave this corrupt speech um, section, I have some questions for you to to consider um, this morning. First question is this. Who are you elevating in your speech? Are you elevating elevating God or are you elevating yourself? I think it's a really important question to ask that'll determine the words that come out of your mouth. The default tendency is oftentimes for self-preservation so that we, uh, our words glorify ourselves to make us look, I don't know, smart, to make us look funny, to make us look popular. And then you're asking yourself, who's on the throne of your heart when you're making those split-second decisions about what to let come out of your mouth? Or do you have Christ rightly on the throne of your heart and your words are there simply to serve him. So consider that. Who are you elevating in your speech? Are you elevating yourself and your own idols? Or are you using your words to glorify the master who bought you? Next question. Do you have any weak spots? Are there times in your life where you see a recurring pattern? Where you're, you're allowing corrupt speech to come out of your mouths? I would recommend you... you you kill them off or you, you make sure you're very cautious in those situations. You know, for example, when you're around a group of people who perhaps don't go to church, does your speech change then? Are you tempted to go down a level instead of remaining where the Bible tells us to, of making sure our speech is um, not corrupt? What about when you're with a group of guys or with a group of girls? Does your guard go down? I've sometimes seen this happen um, and indeed have been guilty of it in uh, conferences um, where you'll see there's a group of people talking and all of a sudden the, the temperature, the, the, um, the noise level will go up bit by bit and somebody says something funny, somebody else says something funny, somebody else wants to go a little bit further, says something a bit more edgy and all of a sudden there's like a frenzy of words coming out and not being controlled whatsoever. Um, it's like a drunkenness almost where words aren't being controlled but that you see that sometimes happening in groups of people where there's this back and forth and the Christian is called not to partake and if you find yourself being carried along with the current remember remember the apostles words in 429 Ephesians and don't get carried along with it don't go down to that to that level a few more what about when you're playing sports what about when you're watching sports uh, what about when you're in business meetings? Are you wanting to make a point that perhaps derides somebody else and glorifies yourself instead of giving words that build up? If you're in school, what about those class meetings? Uh, what about if you're a boss and uh, you are managing someone who's not performing particularly well? What about if you uh, have an unjust boss who is not being reasonable? Do all these guards come down? Do the admonitions not apply to you in certain si- situations? No, they apply to all of us through the power of the Holy Spirit to obey. And then what about if uh, there's activity going on, do we, do we join in with them? I just want to make this point before we move on 
doesn't the apostle say that we should join in with people in certain things? Don't don't we, you know, to be a, uh, I became all things to all men. You know, what about someone who says, oh, you know, I'm just being cool. What about, I'm here of pastors using foul language in order to appear hip or uh, cool. I don't know. Um, the answer to that is absolutely not. You know, when the apostle is talking about that, he's talking about giving up his rights to certain things. He's not talking about adding things or sinful things to his life in order to, uh, that God may be glorified. So the answer is, do not go along with them, run away from them, but expect this. First Peter 4, 4. What could happen? With respect to this, and this is Peter talking about not getting involved in idolatry or drunkenness and all the other things listed in 1 Peter 4. Um, with respect to you not being involved in these things, the people who are involved in these things are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what do they do? They malign you. Be prepared for that, but don't let the fear of that stop you from following the exhortation and glorifying God with your speech. So we've looked at not letting corrupt speech come out of your mouth. And next, the second principle we're going to look at is that um, the, the second principle that must govern a Christian speech is good speech for the building up. Aren't we glad that the apostle doesn't just give us, don't do that. He tells us what to do. And the word of God gives us this instruction because we really, really need it. A few things on defining what is good speech. Well, the word here is building up, good speech that builds up. It's the same word used in Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body in Christ. Well, the question is, how is the body built up? And that question is answered for us in Acts 20.32. This is again Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified up by the word of his grace, by God's word. That's the first thing, that's building up. Next on what is good um, speech. The words in Ephesians, uh, the ESV translates it as, um, as fits the need, I think. It, it's, it's, this sense of being timely, um, that it may, uh, as fits the occasion, as fits the occasion. So good words are also timely, spoken at the right time. Everyone likes to get their view across. Everyone likes to get their 25 cents across. So in Britain, they like to get their 10 pence worth. And everyone wants to get those things. But we're called to, to ask some preliminary questions. Are we building? We forego that right of making our own opinions heard if it's not at the right time. Proverbs 20.11 speaks to this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting. So good speech is good for building up. It is tight. Going to point number three on defining for us what good speech is. It's seasoned with salt. Again, going across to the Colossian parallel. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech um, always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. Seasoned with salt. Salt in this, in, at that time, was a preservative. Salt prevented from rotting or corrupting. And in this sense, our speech is talked about as being seasoned with salt so that we can stop conversation from rotting. So is your speech seasoned with salt? When our Lord says you are the salt of the earth, it, he's talking about us not uh, being a preservative to the world without the sprinkling of Christian light would be corrupting. So do your words, um, are they seasoned with salt? If you're in a situation and you see a conversation going south, becoming corrupt, 
Are you sprinkling salt on that situation? Are you preventing that situation from going the way that it will go, which is corruption? So sprinkling with salt. Um, just uh, one more on, on this. Uh, this doesn't mean that your words have to be uh, soft. Um, we're called to have gentle words. Um, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we're called to have gentle words, but that gentle words doesn't mean that we are, have to be soft. It, it, it doesn't mean that we simply don't tell truth to people when that might be the most loving thing that you can do. Proverbs 27, 6 says, of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. As I said, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to speak truth in love uh, to people who need it, not backing down and preserving yourself, but speaking um, in love. It can sometimes involve hard conversations. It really gets to the heart of the issue. Prepared to have those hard conversations, speaking the truth in with the power of the Holy Spirit, which you need to do this well. Or are you more concerned about perhaps backing down because you might be maligned because of it? And it really gets part of the issue of who, who's on the phone of your heart when you're having conversations. Are you, are you putting off the old man? Because the old man is not going to say anything in those situations. He's concerned with his own glory. And he remember, there's a tension. He's going to want to put um, his uh, across. Yet we are called to put on. It's an active thing. Put on the new man in those situations. Um, be ready to do that as part of your sanctification. Put on. And just if it's helpful, just remember who's offering you those words that don't speak the truth in love, that, that are corrupt. People offering them to you will glorify God. I know the source of me perhaps saying something here. Um, it's, it's the devil who doesn't want you to use your words to glorify God. And tell him to flee the words um, that you need to be speaking that glorifies God. And hopefully that'll motivate you to just remember these commands as we are engaging in our daily conversations. So second, our uh, speech um, must be good for the building up of the body using the Lord's Words. And the third principle that we come to that must govern a Christian's speech is that it must give grace. It must give grace. Now, grace, as we know, is a vital part of our salvation. If we turn to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there's a salvific part of grace that is indispensable. There the apostle is saying, just prior to our verse, that it's by grace that you are saved. It's not of your own doing. There's nothing that we can bring to in our salvation. It is, it is grace alone faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, grace also has a role in sanctification um, as well. Grace isn't done with when we are saved. We don't receive, on the day we're saved, a download of grace that'll carry us through for the rest of our lives. Grace saves, and grace is what we need also to be sanctified as well. Somebody once said it that I found helpful. Think of it like this, that on the day you're saved, you receive the grace for your life in a bank account in heaven, but you don't get the download immediately. You have to write checks every day to make sure that you're receiving the grace that you need to live for that day and to be sanctified and conformed in the image. So here we have grace in a way that's not necessarily salvific, but it's also grace associated with sanctification. Some think this verse of um, giving grace is, um, is a, an allusion to 
words in Luke 4.22, where it says, All were speaking well of him, being our Lord Jesus, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? So you see the grace falling from his lips. We came across it as well in one of our uh, scriptures for the um, one of the hymns this morning, about grace coming from, from our Lord uh, Jesus. So the question then is, how do we give grace? Grace being God's gift. How do, are we told here that, that we may uh, give grace to those here? How does that work? Well, let's talk about the means of grace, first of all. People get very confused about this. You'll see other, um, other religions talking about grace being received through uh, a man uh, giving grace. That's the Roman Catholic conception of grace, is that God gives grace to the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church gives its grace through seven funnels, what they call the sacrament. So the possessors of grace in the Roman Catholic religion is the church, and therefore the man on stage, when he's giving grace. He is in a position where he's imparting grace. That's not true. Grace comes through the Word of God accompanied with the Holy Spirit. That is the means of grace. The grace of the Word and then applied with the Holy Spirit. That is how we receive um, grace, not through physical works or actions as is attested by other religions. That's how we get it. So then the question is, well, how do we play a role in that? Well, it's when we find ourselves aligned and our words aligned with the Holy Spirit, he uses our words so that we may give grace through our words being matched up with the Holy Spirit, um, with the Word of God, we are able to give grace to one another. So when we are speaking the truth in love, in accordance to, with the word of God, then we are giving grace to one another, and we can be built up by that. We can't do that with our own words. My words, and my prayer when I come up here is, is not, my words don't change anything. It's the words of the word effect change, and that grace is coming there. And yet we can be instruments in this grace reaching the world. And we can, when we give the gospel to people, when we talk of the gospel, that gospel can, be, can save people. It's the gospel that's in the word of God. It's a gospel that comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet God uses us as his instruments to give that grace to the world through our words. So our words are very important. And they can save through, if, if they're aligned with the gospel that we read. But also, we can sanctify one another, and we're called to do that as a body of Christ. We're called to um, give the truth, to edify one another, to have fellowship with one another. So when we're in a situation and we are um, exhorting, instructing, in, and, and uh, speaking the truth um, from the Scriptures to one another, we can give that grace that sanctifies one another as well, too. Uh, so speech here... Is the importance of speech is heightened because we know how important grace is. The grace to save and the grace for Christians to be sanctified and let us be ready to be used for that purpose. So as you can see, there's a gravity about our words that they may be used to give um, that grace to, um, to each other. So let me conclude with some observations. Three observations. First of all, this isn't something you can do without a new heart. Salvation is essential in order that good speech can come out of you. And I call on all who are finding, who simply are trying for their words to be good and failing. Um, and if, if, if there's anyone who is repeatedly unable uh, to do this, I'm not talking about perfection, then you can't do this without being saved. You're called to repent and believe so that you have the new heart 
out of which the good words can come. All else will be burned up. But it's, it's Christ's words, the good words from his word that come out of us. And it cannot be done without a new heart. Number two, for the Christian, we're called to work at this. This isn't something that'll come naturally. Remember, there's a tension in our lives of the old man, the vessels, the, the sin hangover from our old life that's got its own agenda. This is key and very important in our sanctification as well. Think of Romans 8.13. If by the Spirit you put to death, you put to death. You could read that if by the Spirit, remember the Holy Spirit's empowerment, you put to death the corrupt words in your mouth, you shall live. It can be, those, that's my paraphrase, but I think the principle stands about our words. Important in our Work at it. Then we are called to do. Just by means of this is not something. Okay? James 3 8 says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. It's not something you're going to be master, but strive to see improvement today and tomorrow of the rest of our lives so that our speech can be more aligned with what the apostle is exhorting us to do but rely on that grace as well that we need when we don't do it and the last thing i will say is this commandment should drive you to prayer this commandment should drive you to prayer because you need you get up in the morning if you went up and out and at it prayerless wordless and you expect and and you're not calling to memory your identity and the truths of scripture you'll find yourself transgressing and we need to be covered in prayer as we want to be used as instruments in the world so that people can be built up and people can be saved so those would be the applications and and the uh, the observations to make sure that we are doing this by the spirit and with prayer, so that our words may not be corrupt, but they may be good for the building up, so that we may be used to give grace to those who hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you, thankful to be reminded of your truths in your word. Lord, we cannot do this um, without you. Uh, we ask that you please uh, empower us uh, through your Holy Spirit to and enable us to fulfill this command which is very important to you. Forgive us when we've transgressed it. Forgive us when we will transgress it, Lord. Um, but help us to, for our words that we use, to, for you to be glorified through us, Lord, and not ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.